Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your calls, especially on a First Amendment Friday. That makes it my favorite day of the week because we open up the phone lines and you get a chance to sound off on anything you want to talk about. And there is a broad range of things to talk about. Number one, the court decision coming down on a Friday about Donald Trump in New York City. You see, the courts and the prosecutor, Letitia James, who'd campaigned on the idea that she would get Trump one way or another. So what did she do? She took him into court and she said, you have committed fraud. You have exaggerated the value of your real estate properties when you borrowed money from the banks. Now, what has always been interesting about that is that the banks never complained. They were happy to loan Donald Trump money. He paid the money back. They were happy with the arrangement. In fact, some of the bankers actually testified in the trial. Yeah, we loaned him money. And no, we didn't really care so much that he exaggerated the value of his property. Since I think the bankers in New York understand that while it probably goes on everywhere in America, somebody says, how much is your house worth? How much is your business worth? I would bet there isn't a business owner anywhere in America who has not said, well, we did about this much de- you know, uh, business last year, so uh, it's worth a lot of money. Now, have any of them exaggerated? I would imagine that happens more often than you think. When do people end up unhappy? When you exaggerate the value of the assets you're using as collateral to get a loan, and then you don't pay the money back. As long as you pay the money back, nobody so much cares. But in Letitia James' case, she wanted to bring a charge that Donald Trump had cheated by exaggerating the value of his properties. Even though he paid the money back, the bankers were happy. And frankly, when you go to a banker, I mean, whether you're Joe Average and you walk into a bank and say, I'd like to borrow some money to buy a house, the bank is going to say, we're going to have to have an appraisal that shows that house is worth enough money that we're willing to loan you $300,000 to buy it. And uh, and if it's not, if the appraisal comes back too low, you're going to have to figure out something else. That also happens in the business world. If somebody walks in and says, I've got a chain of fast food outlets, we generate a lot of business, I'd like to borrow this much money. The bank's job is to find out, are your assets actually worth that or not? If they're happy with the arrangement, then why is Letitia James bringing this prosecution? For the same reason that the other three prosecutions around America have been brought against Donald Trump. Because they hate the guy and because they want to somehow prevent him from winning in November, which he seems very certain to do. He's going to win the election and it drives the Democrats nuts. So what did they do to him in New York? In a crime without a victim where he is said to have exaggerated the value of his properties, borrowed money and then paid it all back. The judges now decided that he must pay a fine of more than, well, basically rounded off. It's a third of a billion dollars, about $350 million and change. Now, I've seen news reports that say Trump ordered to pay $350 million. Well, yeah, he's been ordered to do that. We all know this is going to get appealed, and we all know this is going to get knocked down, maybe even knocked down to nothing. Now, that would be the best result for Donald Trump. 
But do I think it's going to go all the way to zero? Probably not. Do I think it's going to end up at a third of a billion? Of course not. But more importantly, the judge issued his ruling today saying, and Donald Trump is prohibited from doing business in New York, and he is prohibited from borrowing money in New York. Well, Trump's already moved off, and I have a feeling he would like to get, you know, he'd like to put New York in the rearview mirror anyway. And he's going to be president in January of next year, so I think he's going to be a little bit on the busy side. But the idea that they will do anything to this man they possibly can, not because he cheated anybody, not because anybody lost money or anybody was unhappy with the business arrangements they made with him. Some of those bankers who testified said, hey, we would be glad to loan him money again. And yet the the judge has said, you can't do business in New York. You can't borrow money. Oh, and by the way, pay $350 million in fines for your awful crimes that, by the way, have no victim. Glad to be with you. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, you go straight to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. And that's been true for more than a quarter century. It'll be true as long as I'm behind this mic. If you want to vote in our poll on X, I have to get out of the habit of calling it our Twitter poll. It is no longer Should pedophiles get the death penalty? Idaho's House of Representatives has approved exactly that. House Bill 515, which I wish every state in America would adopt, now says if it passes, the Senate gets signed by the governor of Idaho. It will provide the death penalty in cases of lewd conduct with children under the age of 12 if there are aggravating circumstances. In a lot of ways, it's like when they have an aggravated murder statute that provides for the death penalty. That's what happens. The jury is offered the opportunity. So for the worst of the worst cases involving child rape, involving child sexual abuse, the the person found guilty of that crime can be put to death. Let's hope they pass it through the Senate. Let's hope the governor of Idaho signs it. And let's hope a bunch of other sensible states around America say yes to the idea as well. Anyway, on a First Amendment Friday, let's get our first naysayer in. Hey, John, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about to make you a naysayer? Well, your your interpretation and meaning of the Second Amendment. Uh, First of all, if Idaho's going to get a gun, uh, I don't think I'd go to a gun shop. I, I think the best way to get one would be to get one from Eric Holder. I think there's no background check and no waiting period. And it might even be free. Eric Holder, the former attorney general? Yeah. Okay, but hold on a second, John. I'm I'm still not clear. What do we disagree about that makes you a naysayer? Let me me lay that out. Now, you you put limitations on the Second Amendment, and I think that it covers any arm that you can afford to buy. Now, would you see... Probably not stinger missiles, but yeah, generally you're right. What what do you think it would protect me that uh, protect me from having a a Mach twenty uh, stealth bomber that has a ordnance capacity of two hundred tons? Do I think you could go about, out and fi- buy a fighter jet uh, under the Second Amendment? No, no, no. But I what, said a bomber. I said a fighter bomber. Okay, well, a fighter know, bomber. Elon Musk fine. Is building, but Elon but Musk John, is are you just being goofy? Because I wanted to take you no, seriously as a naysayer. What do we? What do you think uh, is yeah. wrong with my uh, my opinion of the Second Amendment? It's a limitation well, on I, government. I, says government can't I, take I just, my right I, to keep and I, bear arms. Listen, I, I I just stated it. Well, then let me answer it. Here's the way the courts have always looked at the Second Amendment. When they say keep and bear arms, they meant 
arms that are currently in wide use among the general public. This was written by the founders. They looked at it and they said, we've got to be able to allow citizens to be able to own the kind of arms that are in current use in our country. And that included weapons that had been used in a civil war and weapons that would be used in the War of 1812. It means guns that people keep. So saying, can I buy a fighter bomber with it? No, I don't think uh, the Second Amendment would protect your right or the government interfering if you tried to buy a fighter bomber. But for silly question of the day, you win the prize. Back in a moment, if you believe that Vladimir Putin was the only person who puts his political opponents in jail, take a good hard look at Joe Biden's authoritarian tactics right here in the United States of America. We'll get to that in your calls and emails. You're listening to First Amendment Friday. He's the best investment in talk radio, and it's free. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. Our poll on X today, should pedophiles get the death penalty? Idaho's House of Representatives has approved that. It remains to be seen whether the Senate in Idaho will approve it and whether or not the governor will sign off on it. But I think it's a terrific idea. It comes not long after Florida last year passed a child rape death penalty last year. Now, does that mean the death penalty for every person who commits that crime, the rape of a child or the sexual abuse of a child? No. But it gives an option to the jury to say this is an especially heinous case, and we're going to treat this one a bit differently. Let's go to Andrea. Andrea, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Well, hi, Lars. I'm a new listener, and it's uh, been you. great to, to tune into you. It's very invigorating and funny, and I'm hooked. So thanks, thanks. for all your work. My pleasure. Uh, What's on my, your mind? My uh, concern is around Idaho 515 that... Um, the whole thing's pretty seriously disturbing um, and way overdue. It's just even unbelievable that we have to debate the horrific abuses that happen to our children. And I guess my concern is, is why, why age 12? Why not 18? Aren't children minors until they're 18? They are, but could we agree that a sexual assault on a child, a very young child, is, I mean, it's sort of in, in a relative sense, you say, well, one's worse than the other. All of these assaults on anybody of any age are, are, are terrible. But Absolutely. assaulting a child who lacks the physical capability to, uh, to stop the, the, the assault, whose innocence is ruined by this, um, if the state legislature, and, and this is not uncommon for them to write laws that say some laws apply to people at different ages because of the, I guess, the additional heinousness of the crime is the best way to put it. So if you said, well, should every rapist be put to death? Well, I'll bet if you put that to a vote in, in many places in America, uh, uh, the population would say, yeah, let's, let's put every rapist to death. And, and maybe you say it's only first-degree rape, not uh, statutory rape, uh, not any of those other crimes, but I could see people advocating for that, sure. But do I think yeah, it's likely that lawmakers children, will do it? Uh, but they're our future, and I've always been an advocate for them. Mm-hmm. And the long-term consequences to these uh, these children, uh, it's 
it's just terrible. And um, these people who morbid, morbidly pursue these unholy crimes, they're psychopaths. And, you know, it's and, it's And great by the way, Andre, when you say there's psychopaths, one of the key things about sexual crimes especially, whether they involve children or anybody else, Every single treatment person I've ever talked to, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, all these people, every time I've talked, I've said, can you cure somebody who is a pedophile, uh, somebody who is sexually attracted to children? And they've said the best you can hope for is control. And a lot of that has to be done by the criminal himself. So the best you can hope for is you can persuade somebody if you want to stay out of prison and if you want to not have your entire life wrecked then you will learn to control yourself, and they may put conditions on them like probation, parole, uh, you know, reporting requirements like sex offender registries, uh, and then you expect the person to control their behavior because when you ask the treatment folks, can you cure this, uh, there are plenty of people who I'm sure have committed burglary and no longer commit burglaries. Right, there are people I agree. Who, you know, but you, this is a kind of compulsion for the These people, people who've got don't this, have a moral compass anymore. Something happened to them. Yes, and they I agree. Need to be either rehabilitated or no, eliminated. No, but stop, stop, and Andre, that Andrea. That's what I was yeah. just saying. If you talk to the people whose whole profession it is to somehow address this problem in whatever way you want to say it, um, they will say you can't rehabilitate these people. At best, they may be able to control their own behavior, but 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 there is no cure for it. Uh, and, and if there's no cure for it, you have two choices, uh, really. You, you can lock them up and confine them for the rest of their lives, which society doesn't seem willing to do, uh, be willing to do right now. Or you can say to them, if you've committed an especially a heinous uh, assault on a child, we're going to end your life, which is also another way of stopping them from doing it. But expecting that you can somehow give them enough therapy and enough, uh, you know, enough psychology and all the rest of that, and that's going to solve the problem. Even the people in the business say they don't believe they can do it. I'm in alignment with that. Well, I appreciate the call, Andrea. Thank you very, very much. Anyway, the question is, should pedophiles get the death penalty? Uh, I would say yes. And Idaho's made it specific for assault, sexual assaults on children under the age of 12. House Bill 515 passed the House of Representatives, says yes, the death penalty should be available to juries that are considering cases like that. And would I entertain the idea of a um, uh, of, of giving the death penalty every first degree rapist? Absolutely. And do I think a lot of juries would probably do it? Absolutely. And do I think that a lot of liberals would go out and try to make sure it never happened, that no sexual pedophile or rapist was ever put to death? They would all do that all day long. Glad to have you with me on a First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I want to say a word about the passing of Alexei Navalny. Now, he's a Russian. He's 47 years old, and he has died. And he he had been an opponent of Vladimir Putin in a country like Russia, where being an opponent of the ruling class usually does not end well. Uh, he has run for president of Russia before, but he has died. Uh, we are actually finding out of his death. They report that on the 16th of February today, in a penal colony, uh, the uh, Alexei Navalny, A.A. A. Navalny is the way they identify him in Russia, 
uh, felt unwell after a walk, almost immediately losing consciousness, and he died. Now, why is that significant? Because an awful lot of people view Navalny as a real hero for acting as an opponent to Vladimir Putin in a country like Russia, where the ability to win the presidency probably wasn't going to happen. And I think that's deeply disturbing. He was serving a 30-year prison sentence. He'd already been assaulted with uh, some some acid and other chemicals that had caused him to lose one of his eyes. He was poisoned with a military nerve agent. He blamed that on Putin, and perhaps Putin did it. But I want you to consider something that I find really disturbing. And we say, only in countries like Russia, or maybe Cuba, or maybe Venezuela, does the ruling class lock up its opponents in prison as a way of answering them. They do not allow them to oppose the people in power. But I want you to consider what's happening right now. And a good example of it I talked about just a minute ago. Donald Trump served as president for four years and did right by this country. Uh, I'd even argue, and, and you might want to be reminded of this, Operation Legend in about the last eight months of Donald Trump's time in office took an amazing number of criminals and murderers and guns off the streets of major American cities. It was an operation named after a little boy who was shot to death in uh, Kansas City less than four years ago. And what did Joe Biden do? He got rid of the program altogether. So you could blame some of what happened, I believe, this week at the uh, Kansas City Chiefs celebration in Kansas City on the fact that Joe Biden decided to do away with an amazingly effective program. But what does the Biden crime family do? They lock up their opponents. If you were a January 6th rioter, even if you committed some acts that were illegal, and I've never excused the actions of people who destroyed property, people who engaged in riot, yeah, they deserve some punishment. But many of them were locked up without trial, without their civil rights for a long time. And now what you've got is you've got the U.S. government is going after an informant, Alexander Smirnov. Alexander Smirnov, whose name you may not recognize, is the guy who brought to the story, the FBI, his story, in which he said to them, the natural gas company Burisma in Ukraine is paying millions of dollars to not just Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden as well. And what happens to a political opponent like that? Why, in America, they lock him up. And they have now accused him of crime, saying he lied about all of this. And who says that Alexander Smirnov is lying? Well, that would be the FBI, an agency that a lot of us don't trust anymore because we know the FBI lies to the American public. We know the Biden administration lies. And now they're taking their political opponents and locking them up in prison on false charges. The same way that happened in Russia to Alexei Navalny. The Lars Larson Show. people with disabilities good thing you can't transmit disease through the radio trust me you don't want what he has more with lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show on first amendment friday i want to tell you about a discovery they made relatively recently near the town of wheatland wyoming I mean, I've been in Wyoming before. I don't know if I've ever been in Wheatland. I don't think I have been. But what they found 
is a lot of rare earths. And why is that important? Well, because virtually everything in our world today runs on computer chips. And computer chips, one of the key things you have to have is rare earth materials or elements to be able to use in those computer chips. And I know that a lot of people say, well, we get all of that from China. We get an awful lot of it from China, but it doesn't mean that it's not present in the United States. What's happened is we've exported pollution. And here's how that works. You say, do we have places where we could dig rare earths out of the ground in America? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, we've interviewed some people on this show who have been trying to get rare earth production back to the United States. The problem is that in the United States, the environmental controls and rules and regulations are so tight that you can't begin to get rare earths out of the ground and process them and turn them into the materials from which you can make uh, computer chips that run, as I said, just about everything in the world because they become too expensive. They're not too expensive because they're hard to get to in America. It's because once you get that stuff out of the ground in the form of raw ore, you've got to turn it into the finished product. And that's where it becomes hugely expensive in America, much cheaper in China. So consider this from the Wall Street Journal, Michael Oslin, who's been on the show before, he said the discovery of 2.34 billion metric tons of rare earth elements near Wheatland, Wyoming, signals the beginning of a brand new era in the competition for raw materials that power the global economy. If wisely exploited, this find, he writes, estimated to be the richest find of rare earth materials in the world, will give the U.S. an unparalleled economic and geopolitical edge against China and Russia for all of the foreseeable future. The load at Halleck Creek, that's the place near Wheatland, Wyoming, has the potential to make the United States the world's largest processor of the minerals used to make computer chips, smartphones, aircraft engines, all of it. Rare earths are fundamental to advanced economic manufacturing. But here's where the problem comes in. You see, the approach of some people in America, including me, would be that God has blessed this country with an amazing wealth of natural resources. We have oil. And the people on Joe Biden's side of the oil says, uh, of the aisle say, we're not going to use it. We have natural gas, a clean and abundant resource in the United States. And Joe Biden and friends say, but we're not going to use it. We have coal. We have literally hundreds of years of the fuel that still provides a significant amount of the electricity in America. And Joe Biden says, and we're not going to use it. We will make it so difficult. We will make it so expensive that nobody in America is going to do it. I mean, we're literally, just to give you an example from the energy side of things, America has an amazing amount of coal-fired electricity. And you say, well, those plants will be around for a long time. Not if the Biden administration and all of their allies on the political left have anything to say about it. They say we're going to drive America's energy industry away from coal, away from natural gas, away from oil, away from all of that. And you say, why? What's going to replace it? They say, we don't quite know. We think it's going to be windmills and solar panels from China. Now, Here's what they say. The Halleck Creek find is reportedly high in two of the most in-demand rare earths. Neodin uh, I, I'm going to mess this up. Uh, min, min, neodymium 
and uh, uh, there's another one I can't pronounce. Uh, P-R-A-S-E-O-D-Y-M-I-U-M. If I had a half an hour, I'd work it out. But both of them are low in radioactive byproducts. Now, here's the problem that Michael Oslin points out. We've got all this stuff. It's a tremendous edge for America in competing against the rest of the world and specifically in competing against China. And why? Because right now, a huge amount of our manufacturing is not done in America. It's done in China. Now, some of that is because of labor costs, but an awful lot of it is because of taxes in America, regulations in America, rules in America, all things designed to throw up roadblocks so that you can't you can't manufacture the stuff at a price where it's going to actually be able to be sold. So instead, we export all of that to China, the manufacturing, and we make ourselves dependent on China. This could be a game changer. And, And in fact, I think that if you went to Americans and said, listen, do you think it's a plus if things are made in America? And most people, when you ask them about that, they think of household goods, They think of clothing. They think of furniture, all of which are manufactured in Asia to a large degree. And they say, why, I'd pay extra to be able to buy American. I would, too. And, in fact, I actually do pay extra to buy made in America. And I'm also aware the price differences are staggering. If you were to say, I want, uh, you know, sheets and towels and household goods that are made in America instead of made in China or some other part of Asia – you better have a big bank account because it is stunningly expensive. Now, when you go to technology like this, it gets even worse. You're going to see opportunities for America to make itself independent of China and to have an economic gold mine and one that frees us from being dependent on China. The only question is, will we be able to, will we be willing, not able? We're able to do it. Will we be willing to pay the price? And once it is made in America, can you imagine going to Americans and saying to them, would you like to have a cell phone? It can still be manufactured in America or in China or Asia or some other place. But would it be worth more to you if you knew that the components in it were made of American materials like these rare earths that have been found near Wheatland, Wyoming? I think most Americans would be willing to do that. In fact, Let me give you an example that's a little off uh, outside the lane. But a number of years ago, we talked to a man on this show who was building homes in America. And they were homes in America made with all American materials. And you say, well, hold on. Aren't we getting stuff that we use to build homes in America from America? And to a large degree, you're not. About 30 to 40% of America's dimensional lumber, what they mean by that is 2x4s, 2x6s, plywood, things like that. 40% of it comes from outside our country. And if you wonder, why would America, who has hundreds of millions of square miles, acres of of trees, uh, most of it on federal land or much of it on federal land, why would we buy imported wood when we could actually do our own? And the answer is, we've exported those jobs for economic reasons, for environmental reasons, for a lot of reasons. Those jobs have gone elsewhere. So buying lumber that was milled and and harvested in some other country, some of it from Canada for certain, some of it from other countries, seems just crazy to me. But when this man 
came up with a Made in America house. He said they went down to where they wanted every sheetrock screw, every stick of lumber, every piece of OSB or plywood. They wanted all of that to be sourced in America. And you know how much it increased the cost of the house? The house went up, and he was honest about this. He said it's between 4 and 5%. Now, the average house in America nationwide, they're more expensive in some cities. The average house in America is about $200,000. Uh, so if you take the average, how much would the cost of the average house go up if you sourced everything from the United States? And the answer is about $10,000. Now, would you pay an extra few dollars on your mortgage every month if you could tell your friends and neighbors and everybody else, my house is made in America, yours was made somewhere else? I think Americans would say yes to that. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. Exploiting your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, especially on a First Amendment Friday. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. It's a real pleasure to welcome back Elaine Parker, who is president of the Job Creators Network Foundation, Elaine, thanks so much for spending some of your Friday evening with us. Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering what's happening in big cities. Uh, I live in a medium-sized city, and I see what businesses are up against when they have just rampant crime in these cities. Um, what's going to end up happening with, with all this? Because there doesn't seem to be any inclination of most of America's, especially the blue cities, uh, to do anything about it. So what's it doing to business? Yeah, um, crime rates have certainly uh, recently spiked in many Democratic-run cities. Um, and in other cities, we started seeing this spike in crime um, start during a COVID-19 uh, pandemic. But it is a result of the soft-on-crime agenda of some of these Democratic-run um, cities. And, and we, we do a poll every month of small business owners, national poll. And in a, so what we've learned um, on the economic side is that in addition to historic inflation and a credit crunch because of the Fed's actions to tackle inflation and high energy costs, that about a third of small businesses um, with a brick-and-mortar location are facing higher costs because of crime. And that's just it, – it's, it's a disproportionate impact on our small businesses. We hear about the big companies um, complaining about uh, crime. They, have a, they get press when they close locations. I mean, Target closed nine locations, announced closing nine locations last fall, and there was a ton of media on it. But what yep. about the small stores right around Target that are going to be impacted? Those guys don't get any media over it. No, they don't. And, and, uh, but there, it must be the case that the folks who are running the show know how bad it is. Uh, or would you disagree? I mean, do you think the people, for example, who run Chicago understand that with this level of crime, a lot of these small businesses are going to go out of business, same as Target, just not draw as much attention. They know what's happening, and it seems they're willing to let it happen. Lars, I don't think they care. I, I really don't. I mean, there seems to be a process um, amongst the, the Democrats who are have these soft-on-crime policies 
that these businesses can absorb these costs. They are, you know, rich, fat guys, right? Um, they can absorb huh. all of this. And the reality is they can't. And when it leaves a shopping center, those are what you call anchor stores. It takes away traffic to the smaller, small businesses that are in those shopping centers. Dick Sporting Goods um, announced in their quarterly earnings last year um, that they missed their expectations because crime was a huge factor. CVS and Walgreens locks up their deodorant now and their closing locations, and McDonald's closed locations in Chicago where they're headquartered because of fear of safety for their employees. I mean, these are things that uh, should actually be a wake-up call to legislators and mayors and governors and the Biden administration that something has to be done. Because I will tell you, Lars, I live in Florida, and Governor DeSantis is not soft on crime, and we don't have these problems. No, and I, I don't imagine you do. I mean, when people say, well, they're intractable problems, you really can't solve them. Um, I, I, I told my audience that... Uh, the one that jumped to mind was the horrible shooting that happened in Kansas City at the Super Bowl Chiefs rally and parade. And I don't know, I didn't know how many people would remember Operation Legend, but I loved it. I mean, it was the last six or eight months of Donald Trump's term in office, and it was the pandemic year. Um, and yet he, he launched it because of the shooting death of a four year old boy in Kansas City. And he said, we got to do something about this. So he details the federal agencies, you know, the FBI, the marshals and the rest, and says, go out and go after this stuff. And in six months, they made more than 2,000 arrests of violent criminals. They brought almost 500 homicide charges. They took 2,600 guns off the street. And and they seized a lot of, of money and drugs and everything else. And you say, and that was in six months of a brand new program. And one of the first things Biden did when he came in was cancel it. So, if people say, well, you know, this is a problem in Chicago or Philly or New York or, or wherever, and you really can't get on top of it, you can if you decide to take the right actions. And and, it, and you can turn it around pretty dramatically. And and, it, and what they saw, even in Chicago, was a big drop in homicide right after Operation Legend, which, as I said, because Trump walked out of office in January of 21, uh, the, the program was canceled by the Biden administration. They didn't just not fund it. They decided we're not going to do it at all. And and as a result, I assume that all the people who might have been arrested in the next six months were not. And it's even possible that the shooting that happened involving, it appears, a couple of juveniles in Kansas City this week could have been stopped if they'd kept you know stripping illegal guns out of the hands of criminals. Well, that that's a great example. I wasn't aware of that program, but it, it's an example of, making consequences, putting consequences on people for their actions. And you can't just set some some level of it's okay to steal to this level, but after that you're in trouble. Because guess what? Criminals are going to go in and steal up to $900 worth of merchandise if that's the level that's set. Um, you know, and we do see an increase in, in violent crimes and gun crimes, of course, um, in Washington, D.C., we're seeing a massive spike in carjackings. I mean, we had legislator, a legislator in Washington, D.C. Yep. Um, that was carjacked himself, the Texas congressman. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. I'm sorry. Henry Cuellar. Thank you. <laughs> I just remembered it. A Democrat. Um, there, yes. 
Yes, and there were 274 uh, lives lost in homicides in, in B.C. last year, which is a 36% increase. So it's happening right there in D.C. where the lawmakers are. They're seeing it with their own eyes, and they're still not having a wake-up call. You know what's funny is the, the city of D.C. said, we're going to lower the penalties. They even tried to lower the penalties for murder. They weren't successful there, but they lowered the penalties for just about everything else. And if you say, well, how, how can we get on top of this? Elaine, do you think I'm right if I say Washington, D.C. probably has more police agencies of every kind? Capitol Park Police, Capitol Police, D.C. Metro Police, FBI, you know, all these different agencies, all of which have you know, either security and or law enforcement people associated with them, if there's any city that could be capable of cracking down uh, in the same way that Operation Legend did, it would be Washington, D.C. And I guess they've just decided it doesn't matter if we lose hundreds and hundreds of our citizens to violent crime because it's the cost of going along politically with what they want to do, which is not locking people up. That is Elaine Parker. Elaine, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. She's president of the Job Creators Network Foundation. It's a First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. Vote in our poll on X. Should we bring the death penalty for people who prey on children as pedophiles? And, of course, you can check out our Instagram feed and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. What is It's Friday, Friday. Yeah, it's Friday. Woo! Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's First Amendment Friday, which ranks as my favorite day of the week because we open up the phone lines and everybody gets a chance to sound off. And if you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. I'm going to tell you that in Joe Biden's America, it seems kids can't even walk home safely. And that is a tragedy. I'll give you a specific example out of Midland, Texas, that kind of illustrates the problem. And then I want to play a couple of sound bites for you from Joe Biden just uh, back when he was a senator, right before he became vice president to uh, to Barack Obama. And uh, and it's been a stunning change because Joe Biden has said he would do things. And today he is not doing them. And Americans are ending up dead. Case in point out of Midland, Texas, a five times deported illegal alien. Now, think about that part of it. For starters, you've entered the United States illegally. You got caught. You got deported. That's one. When you re-enter, the first time you come across is considered a federal civil infraction, meaning you could get a fine. But if you're deported and then you come back, the second time it's a felony. In the case of this guy, the second and third and fourth and fifth time that he came back into America, It was a felony each and every time. So what's going on with this guy? 
Rogalio Ortiz Olivias, 50 years old, five-time deported illegal alien from Mexico, has now been arrested and charged with drunk driving and causing a fatal hit-and-run crash that killed 10-year-old Alex. He was known as AJ, but Alex Wise. He is sitting uh, in custody. He's got $110,000 bail he's going to have to pay if he wants to get out of custody. And officials with ICE have told CBS in Texas that Ortiz Olivias is now being held in jail on an ICE detainer. He was first sent back to Mexico on a voluntary departure order after crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. So this is one of the rarer illegal aliens who's come in from Mexico. And I say that because it used to be an article of faith that most of the people who came illegally into America were coming from Mexico. But these days, we've got people coming into our country from about 140 other countries, including countries on the other side of the planet. And I've told you before about the concerns about Chinese nationals who are entering America, apparently flying all the way from the other side of the planet to Ecuador and then traveling from Ecuador to the uh, American border, usually in Texas, and then crossing illegally in. This guy never should have been in America. And he was in America, just kept coming back because there was no effective enforcement of that border. And so he's out driving drunk. And he is now accused of hitting and killing 10-year-old Alex Wise. Now, that's the real consequence of the border policies of Joe Biden. So I thought we'd take a look back to 2007. Remember that in 2008, uh, Joe Biden became uh, Barack Obama's running mate and then became vice president of the United States. But what was Joe Biden saying about, say, sanctuary city policies in 2007. Now, if you say, well, that was 17 years ago, Lars, things have changed. No, really, things have not changed. In 2007, we had pretty much the same border policy that we had in 1997. And even in 1987, we had granted amnesty to more than a million illegal aliens. It later became millions of illegal aliens who claimed that they had amnesty after the Congress passed a law, and sadly, President Reagan signed it that allowed amnesty for many of those already here. But we were told right after that, if you sign this law, we will strictly enforce the border. That did not happen in the years following the 1986 amnesty. So we get to 2007, and Joe Biden is senator and is going to become president or vice president about a year and a half later. So what was Joe Biden telling Americans about his view of, say, cities that decide they are a sanctuary? They are a place where if there is an illegal alien they and the illegal alien is caught by police, that he will be turned over to immigrations and customs enforcement. But there were cities that for political reasons in 2007 said, We will not cooperate with the federal government. So what did Senator Joe Biden say back in 2007? Pick up the New York Times today. There's a city not far across the river from my state that imposed the similar sanctions. And what they found out is, as a consequence of that, their city went in the dumps, in, in the dumpster. Stores started closing. Everything started to happen. And they changed the policy. They changed the policy. And that sounds like exactly what's happening in many of America's big cities right now. 
New York is overrun with illegal aliens. Chicago has the same problem. And Boston, Massachusetts, they say they have run out of capacity. I mean, these are all cities that brag. We're a sanctuary for illegal aliens. We're not going to help the federal government catch those illegal aliens and send them back. And then the comment that Joe Biden made at the same time he made the sanctuary policy disparaging cities that decided to adopt this policy of we won't help arrest illegal aliens. What did Joe Biden say in 2007 about enforcing federal law? Part of the problem is you have to have a federal government that can enforce laws. This administration has been fundamentally derelict in not funding any of the requirements that are needed to even enforce the existing law. So, Senator law. Biden, yes or no, would you allow the cities to ignore the federal law? No. No. Now, that's what he said in 2007. And yet today, New York City is a sanctuary. So is Chicago. So is Philadelphia. So is Washington, D.C., And is Joe Biden talking now about enforcing federal law? Not at all. He's actually told his head of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who's now been impeached for his misdeeds by the House of Representatives and who will be protected by the uh, they're going to be he's going to be protected by the Democrats in the Senate who do not want to hold him to account for not enforcing federal law. And his boss is the guy who said, you have to have an administration that will enforce the law. He charged that the administration of George W. Bush would not enforce the law. I'd actually agree with him on that. I don't think Bush did nearly enough. But now Joe Biden is doing it, and he's doing the same thing. Let's go to Mike in South Dakota. Hey, Mike, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hey, I'm just kind of curious on this. You know, I'm not a lawyer or nothing, and I don't know the whole schematics of it, but how does a judge, um, um, you know, basically value his property in Mar-a-Lago like at $26 million. So <laughs> It's they, a joke, so isn't they can, it? Well, right, it is. But, I mean, you know, I own property and stuff, and there's assessed value to it that you pay taxes on. I, I, I could, I'm almost positive that Trump is only is not paying for a tax value of $26 million on Mar-a-Lago. I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, are paying less than maybe their actual value of, of their Most property. Are. Yeah. Yes. But, but I mean, it's got to be way more than $26 million. Why doesn't that just get thrown up and say, it's like $26 million is just, because you can't be paying an, an assessed value of $26 million. No, but what is happening is that judge decided he was going to find Donald Trump guilty, whether there was evidence of guilt, whether there was a victim of the crime. The judge decided, I'm going to put Donald Trump out of business. And at this point, it seems he's done exactly that. Back in a moment. Did you? No need to adjust your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you on First Amendment Friday. You know, I think they may be finally figuring it out. It may be that the jig is finally up on all this climate change nonsense that we've talked about literally for decades on this show. Two of the biggest managers of money on planet Earth are simply saying, we're going to quit this nonsense investor coalition for climate that's been set up. 
the one that was ostensibly going to save planet Earth from all that global warming we've been warned about for so long. So I thought we'd talk to Steve Malloy about that. Steve is a former member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team and founder of JunkScience.com. Steve, welcome back. Hey, Lars. Thanks for having me. It actually kind of caught me by surprise a bit because I thought the folks like BlackRock and J.P. Morgan Chase and State Street, they were in this for the long haul. They had decided to buy into all this ESG nonsense and say, okay, we're on board for climate and all that. And now they seem to be figuring it out. Am I wrong or is this a head fake? What What's going on? I think it's a head fake, Lars. Um, so uh, my friends and I have been working on ESG now for Several years. I actually started 20 years ago, um, and you know, we there have there has been enough pressure put on you know banks like BlackRock and State Street and J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, other uh, by red state politicians, and uh, so you know, and, and they've been basically accused of acting as a cartel in violation of antitrust laws. You know, they have banded together to try to force their will onto. Uh, the companies they finance, and that's illegal. And they've been doing it quite openly. So now what you have is, you know, these big banks are starting to peel off from the cartel. So they're not going to be, you know, uh, so obviously connected together. And I think that, you know, this is a good sign that, you know, ES, there's, there's been huge pushback against ESG. People recognize it for what it is. But, you know, these, you know, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of, of BlackRock, uh, you know, the guy is a hardcore leftist. He's buddies with the communist Chinese. He's got business interests there. The Chinese love ESG because it works against America. These guys are not going away. I, they're shapeshifters. They're just going to reform. I mean, I th- you know, this is, this is a good thing that these guys are, you know, uh, so the open conspiracy has kind of been busted up. But they're not going away. I mean, they may go, they may go quiet for a while, they may go in the dark, but I don't think they're giving up the agenda. I mean, because I always thought that the marketplace would drive a lot of this, Steve, because I see even state pension plans uh, around America that are saying, we're going to go, you know, full in on this. We're going to get all the oil and all the fossil out of our investment portfolio. And I thought, hold on, you're in that because it makes money and, and legally makes money. And as a fiduciary, you're supposed to make the greatest amount of money you can legally return. And uh, when you find out we're going to pull out of oil and coal and, I mean, if they pull out of everything involving fossil, that's food. That's virtually everything in our world connects back to energy and carbon. So if you pull out of it, you're going to lose a lot of money. And and I, I always assumed that folks like J.P. Morgan, Jason, State Street and BlackRock were in this to make money. How do you make money if you shift away from the things that are making the greatest return? Well, so they want to have it both ways. You know, last year they did lose a lot of money, uh, lost a lot of opportunity because fossil fuels were very profitable, and the wind and solar, of course, is not. A lot of those guys are going out of business now. So, you know, they want to have it both ways. You know, they want to, um, they, you know, they want to make money, and they all participate in fossil fuels. Don't imagine that they're out of fossil fuels. That's always been false. But they use their position as investors to advance the left political agenda. Um, you know, investors are there to make money. These guys are there. They're already wealthy enough. They make, they make enough money. They're there to advance their political agenda. And that's what but aren't the people down the below agenda. them, aren't the people whose money they're investing asking the, the question, why is my portfolio, I mean, why am I making less money this year? 
Well, we shifted you over to all these green things like, you know, solar panels or windmills or whatever it is, and we got you out of all that nasty fossil stuff. So you're going to have to just accept the loss. I would expect their customers, their big ones especially, to pitch a fit about that. Yeah, well, for most investors, they don't really have a choice. I mean, if you're a well-heeled investor, yeah, you can take your money out of BlackRock and go into a new hedge fund or something like that and do quite well. Uh, but for most, you know, uh, states and uh, pension funds, um, a lot of them don't think they have a choice, or a lot of them are politically aligned with BlackRock and really do want, you know, ESG investing. Small guys, you know, we're we're stuck with uh, the BlackRocks of the world and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, State Street. Um, so it's you know, it's not as easy as you think. I, I don't know that we really have so much of a market anymore. I mean, you know. Just, you know, when you think about markets, I mean, and let's talk about politics for a second. Have you ever seen a president like Joe Biden? I mean, no. you know, before, <laughs> what what president who acted the way he is would not get, you know, thrown out on his butt the next election? But yet it's not obvious that that will happen. So, you know, we've really changed over the decades, and COVID really affected us. And so, you know, people assume, oh, markets will take care of all these things. No. <laughs> Well, and we are, I, gonna, I, we are the market. We're going to have to take care of it. But Steve, the thing I assume would happen is if you had a bunch of uh, politically correct friends. I mean, let's say on a small scale, and they say, "Oh, we're getting out of all our fossil stuff." They say, "Great, I'll buy it instead." I mean, if I had the money, I don't have the money. But but for the people who do have the little bits of money, and they've got an invested in BlackRock, and they say, "Well, you're going to have to, you know, take one for the team. You're going to have to take a lower return on your cash." And you say, "Well, why don't I just go out and buy a bunch of the assets that you're selling, and I'll make the same money I was making, and you guys can lose the money." I would expect it. Even mid, I mean, people are investing millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions. I can't imagine them wanting to tolerate. Uh, the news that you're not going to make 7% this year or 9% this year, you're going to make yeah. three or four points less. I would yeah. imagine that even people sitting on piles of money like 10 or or $100 million are going to say, so you want me to take a multi-million dollar loss so you guys can look good to the White House? No, yeah. I'm not going to well, be part of that. Aren't they doing yeah. that? Yeah, well, let's not forget that you know BlackRock and J.P. Morgan, these guys have tremendous propaganda operations. And people, you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, you know, uh, rely on them, and they think they're telling the truth. And of course, you know the problem is, is we don't have a Securities and Exchange Commission that enforces, um, y- you know, the anti-fraud provisions. I mean, you know, companies like BlackRock are not supposed to be able to lie about what they're doing and, and lie about their investment strategy and all. But you know, if you can't get the SEC to enforce this, they can say whatever they want. And of course, now they do, and people get confused. Well, what I ca- what I saw in the last couple of weeks. Is there still states around America who are pursuing all this wind nonsense, especially offshore? And I keep wondering, but last fall, you had all these majors, people who really know their way around the energy business, who said, like BP, that said, and I don't have any dog in the fight there, but BP says, hey, this windmill thing, it's not going to work. We're getting out, even though we're, 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 we're losing, I think, in BP's case, half a billion dollars by walking away from this. And all these other companies, including one of the big windmill giants from Europe, Orsted, said we're getting out, and it cost them $5.6 billion. You would think that people who study this stuff and invest large amounts of money would say, if they're getting out of it, it's not a good idea to be in it. Is it? Well, no, it's not. The only reason it's still going is because, you know, the Congress has allocated $369 billion for subsidies for 
EVs and wind and solar. Uh, look, EVs are a total disaster. Ford last year lost $30,000 per EV sold. A normal company would be out, but we don't live in normal times anymore. You know, the, 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 the way people think about everything has been turned upside down. We have a government that is, you know, actively steering us towards disaster. I mean, we really do need to take the opportunity presented to us in November to change course, or we're just going to get more of this. Yeah, because I would kind of expect that major stockholders in Ford, which I'm not, I drive a Ford, but I'm not a major stockholder in Ford, would say, hey, you're making decisions that are costing us all the profits you would have made last year because you pumped it into thirty or $40,000 losses on every EV you sold. Steve, I appreciate the time. That's Steve Malloy, former member of Donald Trump's EPA transition team, founder of JunkScience.com, and always a good friend of this show. Coming up in a moment, Joe Biden and his Democrats love to whine about how the Trump tax cuts only benefited the wealthy. But did those cuts actually result in the rich actually paying more, not less, in the taxes? And how do we know that's happening? Because the IRS tells us what the top 1% and 10% are paying, and the Trump tax cuts did not do them any favors. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Somewhere 400 feet off the... No need for a strong Wi-Fi signal. His voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. It is a First Amendment Friday, after all. Glad to welcome back to the show, too, our friend Grover Norquist, who's president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, how are you? Hey, doing very well, Lars. Well, I want to ask you about a number of different things, but I kind of want to start with uh, with Donald Trump and the result in the courtroom in New York. It's a little bit outside your lane, but I thought you might have something to say about the fact that a judge decided he wouldn't dissolve Donald Trump's business enterprise in New York City, but he would hit him with a one-third of a billion-dollar fine and tell him you can't borrow money, you can't do business here anymore, and I wanted to get your take on all that. When we worry about government being dictatorial. This is a huge step in that direction. Uh, Nobody complained about Trump's uh, business practices. It was the government that sued him. There weren't people out going, he didn't pay his bills or whatever. Um, And if somebody thought you weren't paying your bills, you can take him to court. Okay. (laughs) So there's, there's a fix for that. Um, Even if they thought that that was the problem. What happened here is we now know that a local judge and a local prosecutor and a congressional district or town or village, just as we know that there are uh, tort uh, hells where if you're a Fortune 500 company and they pull a jury from this small town in Alabama, that they will cheerfully give a billion of your dollars to some guy whose car wasn't repainted correctly, which is one case that people may remember, or if you spill coffee on yourself, no one, nobody told you the coffee is hot. Um, and you can destroy an entire business with a lawsuit, okay? 
And we've gone to try and make that less of a problem. We now know you can destroy any businessman. How many thousands of businessmen and women will now decide not to run for office, not to show up at a picture helping a Republican candidate, not to write a check. That's public information if it's more than $200. This is a shot across the bow against businessmen and women participating in politics, in American democracy. And that it can be highly political because you could say, oh, we never use that. We never prosecute cases like that unless you're, you're on the other side of the political aisle. In which case you can say, well, who else is being prosecuted for this? Nobody. You're being prosecuted because you're Donald Trump. You're being prosecuted because we kind of expect you to win the election in November and Joe Biden's people don't want that. When that kind of thing happens, even, you know, especially at the presidential level, but even in a local town or city where you say, we don't want Republicans on the county commission or the city council or any other public body. So we'll go after their businesses and anybody, as you pointed out, anybody who's tempted to get involved politically will shy away from that and say, I don't need that kind of trouble. Uh, I won't seek those positions, that it has the potential to dramatically change the political landscape in America. You're either in the ruling party or if you're not, if you're if you're not and you might run for an office and they don't want you there, uh, they'll go after you for politics. Not because, as you pointed out, all the banks who testified said not only were we not angry at Donald Trump, uh, maybe he exaggerated the value of his assets, maybe he didn't, but we would gladly loan him more money today, I think was the testimony. Yes, and for crying out loud, uh, the zoning, not just the prosecutors, and it's interesting to see that uh, some of the rich liberals have been out, Soros and so on, have been out funding prosecutors' campaigns uh, to get very political prosecutors, one, so not to put criminals in prison, and two, to harass Republican businessmen, uh, two-edged sword there, uh, and this is the the zoning committee, the zoning board could destroy any business on Main Street. It doesn't have to be the mayor. It doesn't have to be the special prosecutor. The water people, the guys who tell you whether you can hook up for water. No, we don't think your your hookup is the right thing. And uh, so no water for you. Uh, well, not none, but you, no, you know, we'll come back in a few months and maybe you can open your bar if you haven't gone broke already. The ability of small Towns, cities, large cities, blue states to completely destroy their opposition so they can't ever run. We thought when, you know, Colorado said we're going to decide who can run for president, that was as bad as it gets. They want to be able to have a veto on anyone. The other thing I wanted to ask you about in particular before we get to the IRS agents is this. The standard rallying cry of liberals today is, well, these Trump tax cuts, they delivered big time for the rich and they they didn't give anything to anybody else. And then I saw these new numbers and this is straight out of the IRS. This is after the tax shelters, after the gimmicks, after you've used every excuse in the book, you know, every every legal way to, to avoid paying taxes. Um, they say. Before the Trump tax cuts, the top 1% in America paid 40% of the bill. And now after and with the tax cuts today, they pay 45% of the tax bill. That that just completely refutes that entire point, doesn't it? Yes. And the Democrats were lying when they said it, because the same thing happened when Reagan took the top rate from 70% down to 27%. We were raising more money from people at the top income bracket 
than before. Why? Because when you make it easier for people to operate, they make more money and taxes go up for crying out loud. Um, this, it, we now, you know, the, the left says all the time, that's just not true. And they just lie. And then these numbers come out and then they hope to avoid it. And they'll come back. And the next time there is a tax cut on anyone, they will announce it's just for the rich. The good news is that most people get the idea that the Democrats don't want to cut anyone's taxes. And by the way, about this issue of IRS agents, so you've got plans to put, uh, I guess now, 67,000 new agents on, and now the IRS says uh, most of them are going to be working from home, even though there's a real risk of taxpayer data being stolen, as it just was. The guy who took 7,000 uh, people's tax information, including famously Donald Trump, and, and gave the information away and is going to get a slap on the wrist for his crimes. Uh, yes, they are making, they have sent the message out. If you steal tax information from on someone that we, the establishment Democrats, don't like and hand it to anybody to blackmail them or just to embarrass them, um, uh, the, you know what we'll do? We'll do nothing. We won't punish you. The guy who was convicted, he, there were 7,900 individuals and structures that he, release their tax data, their personal information. Everything that you look at when you fill out your tax returns goes up and is shared with your neighbors, your friends, your enemies, people who don't like you. Um, and <laughs> this stuff went out, 7,900. He was only charged with one count. Now, every one of those 7,900 violations of law, and we're from the head of the IRS said tens of thousands, so there may be more people than we know. Tens of thousands is what he admitted to. Uh, he was charged with one, sentenced to five years. It should have been five years times 7,900, but they wanted to send a signal it's okay to do this to them. Unbelievable. And we're going to get more of it because they plan to hire more of these agents. Grover Norquist is president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, it's a pleasure to have you on on a First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you want to vote in our X poll, it used to be called the Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll. Should pedophiles get the death penalty? Well, Idaho's House has said yes to that. Let's hope the Senate and the governor say yes as well. Would you like to see the most heinous sex abusers whose victims are children under the age of 12 go to death row? I certainly would. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. We'll get to your phone calls and emails coming up. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Honestly provocative talk for America. The Zoom meeting you actually want to be at. 
This is the Lars Larson Show. It, this, it, it is a lot. It is gonna, a lot. Right, Mr. Sena, thank you. We're going to take five minutes. And we're going to take five minutes as a break because the judge decided to get out of the room for a while. That was some of the, if you can call it that, testimony of Fannie Willis. And who's Fannie Willis? Fannie Willis is the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. And she's the one who seeks to prosecute President Donald Trump. Most of the prosecution is based on things he said, saying, I want a full, total, legal count of all the votes that were cast in November of 2020. And for those First Amendment statements, he is being put on trial. And in fact, the deep state would like to throw him in prison somewhere in a deep, dark hole somewhere. But Fannie Willis has run into a real buzzsaw because she may get disqualified from this prosecution, which she was bringing for what seemed to me to be very, very political reasons and not because any crimes were uh, committed by President Donald Trump or even any of his associates. So at one point, Scott McAfee, that's the judge you heard at the end, saying we'll be back in five minutes. Now, she testified yesterday because here's the problem she's run into. You see, she had to, well, she didn't have to, she decided to give the contract to investigate Donald Trump to an attorney. Now, it happened to be the attorney that she was having sex with, who was married to somebody else. So, you know, that's another aspect of this. It's turned into a real reality TV show lately. And yesterday, Fannie Willis took the stand. And in all honesty, if you'd ask me the day before, I know she's highly political. I know she's very outspoken. But I would have kind of expected her to show up on this on the stand and uh, give her testimony in a way that was actually befitting of somebody who wanted to be taken seriously as a prosecutor she didn't do that at all and let me tell you why she's now in trouble she's in trouble because well she started sleeping with a guy he's an attorney he has absolutely no background whatsoever in prosecuting election law cases which this is an election law case he also has no background in prosecuting RICO cases, uh, and this is alleged to be a racketeering in corrupt organizations case as well. So she hires the guy apparently because he's her boyfriend, and she pays him several hundred thousand dollars of the taxpayer's money. And then, and then they decided to start going on some trips. Listen to the way she tries to explain away the fact that she usually keeps tens of thousands of dollars just sitting around her house and that she paid back her boyfriend with some of that cash because, after all, cash does not leave a paper trail. Listen to her talking about her campaign cash. Cash is uh, fungible. We've had cash for years in my house. So for me to tell you the source of when it comes from, when you go to Publix and you buy something, you get $50, you throw it in there. When It's been my whole life. When I took out a large amount of money on my first campaign, I kept some of the cash of that. Now, that's raised some new questions about this. She says, when I took some of the money out for my first campaign for office, she had to run for district attorney. She says, I kept some of that. Now, I think there are two possibilities, and it's going to require more investigation. There are many times where people who are going to run for office decide to run, but they don't have an immediate money to get their campaign started. They're going to go out and raise money, but they don't have any at the front end. So they make a personal loan from their own money to their campaign. 
Now, that's a secondary scam that's run by a lot of politicians where a politician will loan his own campaign $100,000 to be paid back later. If she loaned money to her campaign where she took out a loan, uh, ostensibly for the purpose of funding her campaign, that's not her money either. Not anymore. It belongs to the campaign. And whether you knew this or not, when you're running a political campaign, you can't pay your own personal expenses with that money. And then they called on her dad to testify as well. Now, the dad has been living with her for some long time. He is a former Black Panther, uh, and uh, which I think plays into it uh, if you consider the fact that he was involved in uh, in, in an organization that engaged in a lot of illegal activities back in the day. He took the stand to try to explain uh, his daughter's uh, weird behavior, both handing money that was supposed to be spent from the taxpayers to pay for a prosecution to a guy who had no background in prosecution at all, didn't know what he was doing. And by the way, Fannie Willis, the DA of Fulton County, had people on her staff who were already on the public payroll who did have a background in election law issues, did have a background in RICO cases. She didn't use them. She saw it as a way to get $600,000 or so to her new boyfriend. And her dad tried to explain about the cash issue. When your daughter moved or left the house that she owned, did, did she say anything to you about having a large uh, savings of cash? Oh, no, she, oh, no. See, maybe, excuse me, and I, Your Honor, I'm not trying to be racist, okay? But it's a black thing, okay? I don't exactly know what that means, but that's what he had to say. And then you had Fannie Willis, who decided to put on quite a show. I mean, screaming, yelling, storming out of the courtroom at the end of it. She was planning to testify yesterday and today, and then we got word today she won't be testifying after all. It sounds as though Fannie Willis does not think she's being treated very equitably. Listen to this. It's interesting that we're here about this money. Mr. Wade is used to women that, uh, as he told me one time, the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And so there was tension always in our relationship, which is why I would give him his money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bill. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. Is my daddy. And it gets bizarre because this is the woman who is allegedly running a legitimate uh, prosecution of President Donald Trump and a prosecution for engaging in making statements to public officials about his concerns about what he saw and what I see as the fraud in the Georgia election. So you're being prosecuted for free speech. And the woman who's prosecuting you decides to take taxpayer money and give it to her boyfriend who doesn't have background in what she's hiring him to do when she has her own people on her staff. And then they start taking trips to Aruba, uh, to a number of different vacation spots, uh, to Belize and other places. Why? Why? Because they had a big pile of public money. And she's trying to explain that now. And, of course, her now former boyfriend, Nathan Wade, the attorney who made a few trips to the White House, apparently had some sit-down meetings with some of Joe Biden's staff, which might tell you that this is more political than you ever thought it would be, that this guy is trying to explain how, yeah, I put all those 
vacation trips with my girlfriend, the woman he was cheating on his wife with. I put them on my business account, and then she paid me back in cash. It sounds like this couple or former couple is going to have all kinds of explanations they're going to have to offer up to the IRS and likely some other agencies as well. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I got to tell you something. I want to start with this on a First Amendment Friday. The shooting incident in Kansas City at the Chiefs Super Bowl celebration that left nine children wounded. The total number of wounded was 22. And of course, one person has died as well. But it might well have been stopped by law enforcement. But Joe Biden decided to do away with the plan that was actually working to take guns off the street and put criminals behind bars. Now, I know that I'm going to have some skeptics out there saying, Lars, you can't pin Kansas City on Joe Biden. Well, let me make a try at it. And uh, if you don't agree, we'll be glad to take the naysayer call. But let me tell you what happened. Joe Biden did away with the plan that was actually taking dangerous, violent criminals off the street. It was taking guns off the street. And Joe Biden, in one of his first acts in office back in 2021, decided to do away with that. It also has offered up to anti-Second Amendment voices some fodder to push their anti-gun agenda. Now, that shouldn't be the case. There is an easier solution that actually worked. But as I mentioned, Joe Biden killed that solution. Let me tell you the story. Less than four years ago, and if you don't believe me, go back and check the history. Less than four years ago. The shooting death of a four-year-old boy in where? Kansas City moved President Trump to launch a very, very successful anti-violence effort. Now, you hear people these days talking about gun violence. There is no such thing as gun violence. Guns are inanimate objects until somebody's finger pulls the trigger. What we need is anti-violence, but of course, the Democrats don't like anti-violence because... Anti-violence means you have to arrest human beings. You can't arrest a gun. You can't indict a gun. You can't put a gun in a prison or a jail. You can do that with the violent people who go out and do most of the violence in America. Only the liberals don't like those programs. And let me tell you one very simple reason why. Programs that actually go after violent crime, whether you like the numbers or not, arrest a stunning number of people of color, especially black Americans, especially black men. Now, why is that the case? I mean, just a number you should consider right off the bat is that about 50% of the homicides every single year in America are committed by black men who make up 6.5% of the population. Now, 
am I condemning all black people? No, I'm not telling I'm not tell- telling you that. I'm just telling you that's how the numbers come down. And if you say, well, that's as a result of racial bias. No, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Murder is one of the few crimes in America where almost not quite, but almost every single murder comes to the attention of law enforcement. And why is that? Because when you find a dead body somewhere and it turns out that that person is a victim of murder, that gets reported. Now, I will admit there may be a few very rare cases where somebody ends up getting murdered, their body disappears, they don't have anybody to complain about their absence and say, hey, I wonder where Lars went to. And so the murder is never prosecuted. But in almost all cases, murders are reported to the police. They are investigated. And it used to be that we had a stunning number of murder cases that were solved with an indictment and a conviction and somebody going to jail. Now, when you've got numbers like that, you tell me that that's a result of racial bias. But let me get back to what happened in Kansas City four years ago and why it relates to what happened in Kansas City at the Chiefs celebration this week. Donald Trump looked at what had happened when a little boy, four years old, named Legend Taliaferro. Legend Taliaferro was four years old. He was the victim of a crime. He was shot and he was killed. So President Trump said, We're going to put an end to this. Well, we're going to at least make a dent in it. So he launched what was called Operation Legend in the summer of 2020, his last full year in office. It hit not just Kansas City, but half a dozen American cities. And if you don't believe me, look up Operation Legend. It's easy to find lots and lots of stories about it. And let me tell you what happened. This has to rank as one of the most successful law enforcement efforts in all of American history. In six months, police made 2,000 arrests. It was actually slightly above that. And almost 500 murder charges. 487 people charged with murder. So they went after the people who did the crimes. They also went after the guns. Federal agencies, and it was federal agencies behind Operation Legend, in six months took 2,600 firearms off the streets. Now, when you take the gun out of the hands of somebody who's using it in an illegal way and in many cases is already a convicted criminal, you just stopped who knows how many possible felony crimes that would have happened otherwise. 2,600 firearms taken off the streets out of the hands of criminals. They also seized, get this, 65,000 pounds of heroin. An awful lot of murders and other violent crime happen because they're driven by drug gangs that are battling each other for control of drug territory. They also seized about 40 pounds of fentanyl. They seized more than 600 pounds of methamphetamine. They seized 250 pounds of cocaine. And they seized $11 million in drug money. Money and drugs and criminal violence, they all go together. So criminals went to jail, and guess what? Violence dropped sharply, not just in Kansas City, but six other major American cities, including, notoriously, Chicago, which is, well, on an average weekend, you see dozens of people who are shot and a striking number of people who are murdered every single weekend in Chicago. Those rates dropped right after Operation Legend, and it makes common sense that they would have. So Joe Biden arrives at the White House in January of 2021 as this 
program, Operation Legend, was just finishing up six months of operations. And what did Joe Biden do? What he did with every single common sense idea that Donald Trump had put in place. He canceled it. He did it very quietly. He didn't want to have anybody see what he was doing. He got rid of Operation Legend. Even with all that success, violence in all those cities went back up again. Again, not surprising. And the two suspects in custody in Kansas City today are children. It is already illegal to sell guns to children. So brand new laws wouldn't have changed Kansas City, not one little bit. Operation Legend might have changed Kansas City. It did change Kansas City four years ago. Joe Biden never gave any reason for killing Operation Legend. But liberals, well, they complain, ah, this law enforcement stuff, it puts too many people of color in prison. You think it's worth pointing out that the majority of the victims of those violent crimes are also people of color in America. So you have to ask yourself, are you more concerned about locking up black and brown Americans who have committed criminals, along with all the white people who commit criminal crimes as well? Or are you more concerned about saving the lives of their largely black and brown victims? Ask yourself that. Give yourself an honest answer. And you tell me. If Joe Biden had not killed Operation Legend, would some of those people not have been shot on that street in Kansas City this week? Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars, 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join the conversation, is 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our fresh daily question on X. You can find it at Lars Larson Show. And if you don't like X, formerly Twitter, you can go to our website at LarsLarson.com. If you ask me my honest opinion, I think that our culture in America is in a terrible mess. And just a couple of hundred years ago, we had some great people who had great faith that they could forge a brand new nation. And it is a fantastic nation with something that is unique, the greatest amount of God-given liberty that any any people on planet Earth enjoy. And we have a constitution that, at least in theory, is supposed to protect those people from the interference of government. And yet I think we're in big trouble right now. I mean, just off the cuff, you understand, we have a culture that is beginning to embrace euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide. We've got a culture that embraces abortion to a disturbing degree. And now we have a culture that apparently believes you can chemically castrate children and uh, and change their genders. And I thought, well, with all that in mind, uh, the occurrence of a brand new book called Fight the Good Fight, how an alliance of faith and reason can help us win the culture war breath of fresh air from Jay Richards, who's director of the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, and William Simon, Senior Research Fellow at Heritage. Uh, Jay, it's good to have you back on the program. Great to be with you. Why'd you write the book? I wrote the book, honestly, because, as you sort of said at the end, I mean, I've been involved in culture and politics battles and debates for years, 
But it's only in the last three years I've gotten deeply involved in this fight over gender ideology, and I really think something has changed. I mean, if you were involved in a pro-life battle or the battle for marriage, I joke that it's sort of like, you know, the folks around you look like the Heritage Foundation uh, internship class, right? We're all kind of similar. <laughs> so religious, social conservative. Yeah, they're Catholics and evangelicals, but, you know, on these big things, we actually agree. Um, all of a sudden, things have changed. So the culture, which 10 or 15 years ago, you know, secular culture claimed it was based on reason and science, all of a sudden is now denying basic mammalian biology applies to human beings. And so I think we, you know, culturally, we've jumped the shark. And so as a result, we now have a coalition of what we, I'm calling the, the Alliance of Faith and Reason, of people that includes social conservatives, it includes religious people, it also includes a bunch of parents that uh, doesn't have particular political or religious persuasion, but have gotten uh, red-pilled because these crazies are coming after their children. And then you've got people, atheist evolutionary biologists, even lesbian groups and feminist groups that say, no, boys and girls are actually different and they can't just, one can't become the other. And so that, this is a completely different coalition of people and we need to learn how to talk to each other. So the book is really an attempt to kind of create, okay, what's, what's the game plan and the arguments that you make in this, this new situation with new would-be allies that aren't used to each other? See, and that's what I've been waiting for, because, Jay, I've been bemoaning for several years now. I can't, I don't, can't say a decade. But when I saw, you know, transgenderism start to rear its ugly head, I said, oh, what are you going to are you going to sit down with your daughters and your granddaughters and tell them, sorry, honey, don't even bother going out for basketball or volleyball or track and field because you're going to be beat by a biological boy. He's going to set all the records. And now we're seeing it literally happening. And I keep wondering where are the parents, because you don't have to be a rock-ribbed Republican to say, I want my granddaughter to be able to run in a race and run against other girls, because we understand that, you know, as I keep reminding my audience, men beat the four-minute mile in the 1950s. And here in 21 or 2024, uh, the closest women have come is something like 408. I said, so when it comes to oh, yeah. a foot race, it, you're, you're, the design you got from God is not going to let you That's beat right. a biological male, right? Exactly. And, and see, this is one of these things. It's, of course, the truth of revelation. We know Genesis says God created us male and female. But you know what? It's also a truth of reason that absolutely everyone at every time and place knows. In fact, it's directly apparent, unlike, say, truths of reason about um, uh, embryology. I mean, we know from science that human life begins at fertilization, but most people don't have direct experience of that. Everyone has direct experience of what it means to be male, what it means to be female, uh, and that, the, that they're different. That's why we segregate sports. And so the fact that the public culture, the commanding heights of culture, the influential institutions all deny this manifest truth of reason, this puts us in a kind of different position. And I think Conservatives and Christians have got to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we make our arguments to the people that we can win over in this totally crazy situation? So how do we make that happen? Can you give them a thumbnail sketch? And then I promise, I, I know from experience, a lot of my audience is going to go out and buy Fight the Good Fight, how an alliance of faith and reason can win the culture war. So this is, this is the basic uh, clue is that you do not start arguments that when you're trying to persuade people with assumptions that you hold, you start arguments based on the assumptions that they hold. So I believe that God created us male and female. I believe that God told us not to kill innocent people. 
But if I'm trying to persuade something, someone about abortion or about the nature of marriage, I'm going to argue based on things that they already assume to be true. The nice thing about the gender uh, subject is that there's a bunch of people that don't agree with us on almost anything else that nevertheless accept that males and females are real. And so my argument is but partly sociological. It's partly just, look, once they trust you because you were on the front lines fighting for the rights of women to have their own bathrooms and, spe- and their own spaces uh, and own sports, you're in a different position to be able to have a conversation with them about marriage and about God uh, and about abortion and all these other things that they also disagree with you on. But it's also a kind of lesson in how you make these arguments. So throughout the book, every chapter, whether it's about trade or immigration or abortion, we make both a revelation argument, like what's the theological understanding at this point, and a reason argument. That is a public reason argument, just just based upon the, the secular facts that should be available to anyone that has an open mind. You know, I'd like to ask you about something. You mentioned trade, and it's always struck me as crazy that the same mostly liberal people who push all of these things have now said, and we're going to tell the rest of the world, we're going to fly the rainbow flag in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And I mean, things like this. And I think, hold on, you know, you don't like it when other people tell you what to do. And now you're going to deliberately parachute in to cultures in which you know your ideas are not just anathema. They're probably apostasy. And if you get caught doing it, you might just get stoned literally. Uh, and you say, and, and you think this is a good idea and it's going to go over well with the rest of the world where a lot of these ideas don't don't work at all. At all. In fact, that's a, that is a major part of our foreign policy. I've had people from uh, foreign countries that have said, you know, the only time I have ever seen a pride flag or I've ever seen, you know, the, the, now the trans flag, the progress flag, the only time I've ever seen that is flying from the American embassy in my city. We are literally, this is like the main point of our foreign policy under Joe Biden. As you said, it's completely crazy. I mean, we're talking about countries uh, in which, say, homosexuality is illegal and we're pushing this stuff. It makes absolutely no sense. So the same people, as you said, that are relativists about everything else um, want to be absolutists and force all this stuff on everybody else. Well, I mean, because they are the people who are constantly telling us, you can't steal somebody else's culture, you can't use it, you can't adopt it, which I think is a compliment if you adopt parts of somebody else's culture. Uh, On the other hand, you can't force your culture on them. Oh, but we're going to go tell, you know, some Middle Eastern country that's Muslim majority that they're going to go by our rules or else because it's so important to you to prove the point at home that you want to bring it over here. That's not going to that's not going to go over well. No, it's not. In fact, if you read the gender ideologues now, they actually argue that the idea of a male and female is a false binary that is imposed by Western colonialism <laughs> and imperialism. <laughs> you can't make this up. I have a hard time even saying it, but that is actually what they say. Yeah. So, okay. So the, the Kalahari Bushmen, right, who never encountered the West, uh, somehow acquired this idea of males and females. I mean, this is just how completely gone to seed this these ideas are in our culture and i don't think it, it, honestly i mean you're 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 in uh, oregon and washington yes. places like that where the stuff you know on the kind of leading edge most americans i can tell you until recently when i first started talking about this stuff to groups 
you know, boomers just couldn't process it. Like they just think, okay, maybe that's happening in Portland, but that doesn't happen anywhere else. And I had to say, no, actually it's happening in Whitefish, Montana. Yep. Um, and, and so honestly, for, for three years, it, uh, half of what I've done has just been to pers- try to persuade people this is real. It's absolutely everywhere. And we've got to fight it like civilization. we got to fight it right now. The book is called Fight the Good Fight. Its author is Jay Richards from the Heritage Foundation. Back in just a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Lars Larson Show. Larson Show live at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You've heard me complain plenty of times about the monkeying around with our election system that the Democrats, mostly Democrats, occasionally conservatives and Republicans do it too, but not very much. I mean, they wanted to go to vote by mail. They want to go to all these different systems. And why? Because I think their motivation is they've found they can't really win in a square uh, contest, a contest that's done by just a simple set of rules. So one of those ideas that I have disliked for a long, long time, although I think I'm about to learn some new reasons to dislike ranked choice voting. I've invited Catherine Gonzalez on, who is the director of state advocacy for Heritage Action. Catherine, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thanks so much. Uh, Great to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks. Can you make ranked choice voting understandable to me and to the people listening to this show? Well, you know, ranked choice voting is inherently complex and confusing. So if we end this discussion today confused about what exactly ranked choice voting is, uh, we wouldn't be completely misplaced because the inherent process of RCV, or what we like to call it rigged choice voting, is a complex process that simply makes it harder to vote. Um, It allows voters to rank multiple candidates for a single office. This would result in some voters having to rank 12, 16 candidates in one race. Um, And then if that one candidate receives the majority of those votes, great. Works like any other election. However, uh, if no candidate receives a majority of those first place votes, with ranked choice voting, then that candidate goes to the fewest first choice votes, and that is eliminated. So, It then becomes this adjusted system where voters who have not voted, uh, who have not ranked more than one candidate, their vote is simply cast out or what I would call disenfranchised. So it's a very complex process with a lot of problems, uh, and it simply makes it harder to vote. Okay, let's make it simple for somebody like me. If you've got three candidates, I realize we could have 16, but if we have three candidates, A, B, and C, So people rank them, and let's say uh, A gets the greatest number of votes, but not, what, 50%. Then then how do they determine where the votes for B and C go? Yeah, so then they will take the the second. So if no one receives the majority of first-place votes, then the candidate with the fewest of first-choice votes is eliminated. So then it would go to two, and then they would see – how many voters voted to rank 
uh, one and two and who got the majority out of those two. Well, the problem is, is that if I didn't rank all three, if I only ranked one candidate, my vote is no longer counted um, because of the ranking system that that ranked choice voting uh, imposes. Well, in fact, it 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 cheats me of the opportunity. If I walk into the voting booth and I say I'm voting for A, I have no intention of casting a vote in favor of B or C, then uh, then I'm cut out of that opportunity, right? Because because they say, well, you, you, you say I just vote for A, as you said, and then A doesn't get 50%, A goes away or, or C goes, or the lowest one goes away. The lowest would go, exactly, that's right. And, in, and even in, and there was a New York mayor's race uh, in 2021 where they went through eight rounds of this, and there were more than 140,000 uh, ballots of voters that were thrown out because they had not completely ranked all of the candidate choices on the ballot. And so those voters, what what the proponents of ranked choice voting might call simply, quote, ballot exhaustion, I, I call that disenfranchisement. Well, sure it does. And in fact, let me ask you, maybe you're familiar with this example, uh, a, a congressional election in the state of Alaska a couple of years ago, and 65 percent of the votes, as I remember the numbers, were cast for one of two Republicans but the third candidate was the non-Republican, either an independent or a Democrat, and the Democrat ended up winning. Do I remember that one right? I believe so. And there's been multiple uh, examples of how ranked choice voting is failing uh, the process. In fact, in Utah, where they've had ranked choice voting at the local level, where it's a, quote, pilot program, um, voters are now saying, hey, we don't like this at all. We've tried it. We don't like it. And in fact, they're proposing a repeal in their legislature uh, to end that pilot program and to ban ranked choice voting in their state. So voters aren't happy with the process. Voters don't like it. Um, Alaska is another example where they've had statewide ranked choice voting. Um, and now they have a ballot initiative to actually repeal ranked choice voting from uh, from their election process. And, and then you've got Oklahoma and Missouri, which are starting uh, to consider bans on ranked choice voting or rigged choice voting. You've got South Carolina bill to ban it. And you've got, uh, what, a couple of other states that are looking at it. Wisconsin, I think, is one. I understand why one, I guess I understand why one side sees an advantage. But is there a partisan advantage to either Republicans or Democrats of having RCV? I think there's certainly been some studies out there that show that and that show that this uh, can result in, in left-leaning results in a way to, to co-opt um, the election process. Um, you have to keep in mind, too, uh, ranked choice voting, even if it's implemented, has a, a major uh, experience shift for the voter, right? And so New York, again, spent millions of dollars just in an education campaign uh, to help voters understand the new process. So. I was assistant secretary of state in Kansas before coming to Heritage Action. And I understand the burden that's on uh, county clerks to a certain extent to administer elections. And they do such a great job across the country. Um, imposing a completely new system like ranked choice voting is, is not only uh, difficult to the voter, but also our administrators. Um, and not to mention expensive. I'm talking to Catherine Gonzalez, who's a former assistant secretary of state. She mentioned director of state advocacy for Heritage Action. Is there a case to be made, since it does disenfranchise people, that this is unconstitutional, that while the states are allowed to have laws to regulate their own elections, and that's not decided by the federal government, is this constitutional? 
You know, I'm not an attorney, so I, I perhaps will, will leave that, that question to, to attorneys, but I, I do think states have every right right now to proactively ban ranked choice voting from their state. And in fact, five states have already done that, um, Florida, Tennessee, Idaho, Montana, and South Dakota, where they proactively said, we're not going to have ranked choice voting in our state. And as you mentioned, um, about a dozen or uh, close to a dozen states are looking to introduce ranked choice bans, uh, voting bans this year. You mentioned some of them, but all the way from states like Wisconsin to Mississippi, uh, Alaska, et cetera. So I do think states have a real opportunity here to take action and proactively ban ranked choice voting in their state. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I guess I just wonder, this is going to be the system by which some of the states make determinations. Does it apply to the federal elections like president? Um, yes, they have. In, I believe in some states have uh, Maine and Alaska have applied that to, to federal election, elections, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, they've tried it. But like I mentioned as well, you know, Alaska... Voters are already saying we don't want this in our state and looking to repeal. I, I would not be surprised if Alaska this year was successful in completely repealing uh, ranked choice voting altogether. I guess I guess it might tell us a lot if we knew who are the primary proponents of ranked choice voting and are they mostly liberal activist groups? Yep, for the most part, they are. You're also looking at uh, quite a bit of uh, funding coming in from folks like Catherine Gell in Wisconsin and, and, and billionaires like John Arnold. Um, but yes, for the most part, they are, you're seeing these nonprofits that quote, com- cl- claim to be, you know, nonpartisan uh, testifying in committees. You can all see it uh, in, t- in states where they've testified like Wisconsin and others. Um, you're also seeing this push for uh, what some call renter Republicans. Unbelievable. Rent a Republican so you can gum up the system and game it. That's Catherine Gonzalez, who's at uh, Heritage Action. Catherine, thanks so much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. Because you can't get enough, Lars. Podcast every show at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. And brace yourself for it. Illegal alien is vote, voting is going to come to America this year bigger than it ever has been before. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back that up because I've been warning you about this, one of the motivations for Joe Biden and his buddies to allow an invasion of more than 10 million illegals in the last three years is because they plan to use them to cheat in the 2024 election. And by cheat, I mean having people who are illegally in the country and they're going to vote in the election. And if your objection to that is, well, Lars, they can't vote in the election, they're not citizens. You're right, legally they can't. The problem is they will. Because we know, number one, that foreign nationals sometimes vote in American elections. And when they get caught, almost nothing happens. In some cases, one case that comes to mind for the last uh, month ago, a month ago, we found, about, found out about a woman who had been voting in American elections for 20 years. 
She admitted to the investigators, yes, I know I'm voting illegally. So she knowingly did what she did, kind of like Joe Biden knowingly took all those classified documents. And guess what? They didn't bring any charges against her at all. So recently, Elon Musk has posted on X, number one, illegal aliens are not prevented from voting in federal elections. And that's true. Number two, you don't need government-issued ID to vote. And number three, Democrats are importing voters. Now, you immediately saw entities like the New York Times come out and say, well, this is outrageous, and Musk is spreading election misinformation, to quote from the New York Times, except that he's true. Everything he said was true. So uh, uh, let's see, just the facts. Just the facts did this story. The Times argues that federal law requires voter identification from voters when they register. But then they go to the actual requirements in the 2002 federal voting law. And what they fail to mention is that there have been court cases, including one 11 years ago from the Supreme Court that says, quote, it does not require documentary evidence of citizenship. Rather, it only requires that an applicant claim under penalty of perjury, that he's a citizen. And you say, well, people aren't going to commit perjury to vote. Yeah, they will, if they know that even if they do it, nothing much will happen to them. So be ready for it. We're going to see the Democrats attempt to use illegal aliens to win this year's election, and the elections authorities are not going to do anything to stop it. And I've been telling you about this, including the example out of Arizona, where Arizona's elections officials have actually said, If you want to register to vote, you have to prove that you're a citizen. But even if you don't prove you're a citizen, we will still register you to vote, but only under uh, only for federal election races. Well, that would be president, senator and member of Congress. So in other words, the illegal aliens will only be allowed to vote in the federal elections. Gee, that sounds so much better, doesn't it? Let's go to our first naysayer. Hey, uh, Bart, you're a naysayer. Uh, wh- what do you and I disagree about today that makes you a naysayer for the show? Uh, hey, thanks for taking my car. You call, bet. Lars. I appreciate that. Uh, first off, I appreciate the job you do. You're a great American patriot. And frankly, I think you should run for president, which brings me to my point. President Trump uh, was commander-in-chief, and I believe that he, he had a a great dereliction of duty in allowing our most sacred place in our nation, our, our nation's cap, capital, to be overrun. Now, I see two things that happened there. Either, A, he knew what was going on, and he allowed it to happen. I mean, I, I, I guess that's that's it. Um, okay, then can so I ask you some questions? Because that? that's okay. what I do with naysayers. I ask questions. So... Was Donald Trump in charge of security at the Capitol on January 6th? Uh, yes, Commander-in-Chief, I believe he was. No, no. The Commander-in-Chief commands uh, okay. the U.S. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you know what Posse Comitatus is? Uh, Posse Comitatus? Uh, refresh me. It's been number You can't use the United States military to perform police duties within the United States. Yeah, they, they sometimes well, are called in. Well, hold on. So can... Okay the president deploy American troops on American soil to do the job of law enforcement? Well, if I would say on the nation's capital. capital. No, no, if, there's no exception in there for that. So do do we have a capital police force that costs us a couple of billion dollars a year? Yes, sir. Who is in charge of the capital police force or was at the time on January 6th? 
Uh, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi was in charge of she was the go to because the Capitol Police is technically overseen by a committee. But all the committee members are named by Nancy Pelosi and they answer to her. Now, was she uh, one more question? Was she offered 10,000 National Guard troops before January 6th to maintain order? Mm, Okay. Was she? Uh, I'll assume the answer is yes, because yes. And do you know who offered her the 10,000 National Guard troops to maintain order on the nation's capital? The president. Yeah. Now, President Uh, Trump offered her 10,000. Did she accept it? The obvious answer is no, she didn't. Now, immediately after January 6th, she demanded military. In fact, they actually asked for squad automatic weapons, SAWs, to be deployed on the nation. Now, they didn't get that. Because because everybody knew that was an absolutely lunatic idea. But Nancy Pelosi Uh and was Nancy Pelosi's Capitol Police Force warned days ahead of time by the FBI that there was some major event, not a good one, that was going to happen on January 6th. I'll assume again the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So the And the FBI even held a news conference. I remember when they did it. They did it about three days after January 6th. They said, we knew there was trouble coming. We had identified some of the actors. They'd actually arrested one of them who's been on this show before, Enrique Terrio, uh, who's the former head of the uh, the Proud Boys. And, uh, and he was arrested at Reagan Airport several days before January 6th. And the FBI announced in public on January 9th that we warned the Capitol Police trouble was coming. Now, Bart, can you think of any reason that Nancy Pelosi, knowing that her police force had been warned that there was trouble coming, would want to let the trouble happen anyway. Yeah, I can see. So it would concern people like me and, uh, you know. Well, the, the reason I ask you that that way, Bart, yeah. do you remember what happened in the last two weeks of the Trump administration that was a truly national event, the impeachment? Yeah. And the impeachment was based on the riot that happened on January 6th. So Nancy Pelosi wanted to impeach Donald Trump, but she didn't have an excuse on January 5th. On January 7th, she had a dandy excuse, and she said, why we're going to impeach Donald Trump. And other than what we've just talked about, police forces and military, what could Donald Trump have done when the trouble began at the Capitol where he had told the crowd, let's go up and peacefully and patriotically tell the Congress what we want? After he did that, once the trouble started, what could Donald Trump have done to stop it? Yeah, perhaps he could have made a call to Nancy Pelosi. Did that happen? Uh, I think he talked to Nancy Pelosi. I think Nancy Pelosi got exactly what she wanted, which is probably why her daughter, the documentary filmmaker, just happened to be in Nancy Pelosi's office on the day the trouble started. Bart, you're a great naysayer, and you made a great point. The Lars Larson Show.